Hello and welcome to the Global City Mission podcast, where we discuss contemporary issues in cross-cultural disciple-making. Today I'll be speaking with Joe Reed of Exponent Group and Corey Osborne of KC Underground, answering the question, what is a person of peace? And for regular listeners, I apologize for the audio quality. It was recorded on a phone call, but here you go. Okay. Um, cool. So, yeah, I want to jump right in, uh, but... I first want to give just a little bit of context for this conversation because this is one that I think has been rattling around in my head for a while, but I, we haven't really been able to talk about outside of our team, which is limited in context to New York. Um, so I know, you know, if you're, if your DMM training was like mine, I mean, it, there was a heavy emphasis on what a person of peace was. I think the assumption was it was like a person in India or Africa. It's some kind of high level social leader who has the capital. To gather a group, that group is going to be the launching point for, you know, Discovery Bible Study, but it's going to branch out and apply. And, you know, you hear stories about going into a village and finding, you know, some kind of elder or business owner, and they gather 18 people in a room. And that just has not been our experience. Um, and I think there's a couple reasons for that that I could get into. I think one I think in North America, people don't have the same kind of extensive social networks. Um, you may have seen that article that I posted that, you know, what is it, like 20 some odd percent of millennials say they have no friends. Um, I think another one is how egalitarian and individualistic North American culture tends to be. That, you know, there's no, it's not as hierarchical and so there's not a natural social leader to gather people. Um, so, our average three or four and usually will, I mean, could double or triple within the first year and a half, but it, it, we usually add individually before there's any multiplication and it takes tremendous social capital to gather the original three. Um, so anyway, all that's a bit of context for what's going on in my head, but I'd be curious from, from your work, from the work that you coached, what does a person of peace look like? How do you look for one? How do you know when you found one? So, I, Corey, if you want to take that first, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Kansas City, mostly, it, mostly in prisons, or, or where all is your ministry divided? Uh, I, no, I mean, as far as most of uh, initial fruit and early success stories, jail, post-jail context, um, lot, probably less, maybe 50% of what I'm doing now, and then a lot more neighborhoods, college campus, and then anywhere in between um, and so everything is wildly different from context to context and so I do think so when I talk about it the person of peace concept in our trainings I'm I'm, I'm, talk, I'm talking a lot about networks like all of us um, and I'm finding there are I think pockets of natural networks and so those are the things like so almost like we're targeting instead of necessarily targeting finding persons of peace we're targeting networks that actually function a little bit more maybe like a uh, person of peace would overseas if there, you know, there is more that influential person there, you know, from like, so a college dorm hall might have a little more of that feel. Um, obviously a jail would have a, a ton of those, that, that feel. Um, <clears throat> but on the, are you talking about it? It might be my, I'm, I'm hearing feedback. Good. Cool. And then uh, I would say the other thing would be, uh, so in our neighborhood work, so a lot with Casey Underground, uh, a lot of the emphasis has been in the suburban neighborhoods, 
20 somethings, 30 somethings, 40 somethings. And um, what we have found, and I think Seth, you and I talked about this before, is just that like, you're right. Like, no one knows each other. Uh, it's block to block is a little bit different. And so we we basically, within our training, understood that, okay, you're going to put a bunch of hard work of essentially to build a network. Um, and and you're either that person, which a lot of our fruit has just become, come from uh, social people who can act as that glue bag. Um, but we actually put a lot of training in the system. You're going to build a network by hosting parties a couple times a month, uh, by, uh, we've got 50 things that we talk about, right? They just become that, pe- those people in your neighborhood who sit out in the front and have relationships with people. And, uh, and then, then you plant that you do a discovery group essentially within this network where they're already gathering. And so we've launched, uh, three or four probably in the last few weeks. That have been just the result that last couple of weeks, maybe as a result of a few months worth of work. But then that's a little bit more long term because everyone's there for a long time, and so it becomes kind of this this gathering relatively quickly. Um, so that and that's where Casey Undergrad's focusing on. Like essentially, it's like we're we're calling it a micro church as as soon as we can. Um, but the hard work is that yeah network. So I don't know. It's like we're, it's like we're creating a person of peace at some point. Like ask is it sounds like you're training the disciple maker to function as a person of peace rather than searching out something that already may exist in the harvest is that a fair framing of <laughs> yeah we so i when we try people it's either that or you partner with the person who is the social connector you know yeah. so some of three three ba- houses down from us mary she's the one who knows everyone she's got that relational capital and so that's the person who you're going to partner with yes um and so but yeah, and usually yeah, you partner with two or three houses and say, hey, I'm trying to do this. Yeah. And, uh, I'm like that But you have to step into it knowing this is a lot of hard work. And that's a suburban American context, like middle American context. But yeah, but, we create a person of peace partner with Yeah, I think that aligns with our work. I know one of the things that we do in our training is we distinguish between three different types of people that may or may not overlap on a Venn diagram that we've got a person of peace who's going to gather for a new group. And that could be somebody we're training. It could be somebody in the harvest, but it's literally whoever can put bodies in a room for, for this kind of community. And then we have within the neighborhood, what we call gatekeepers and cultural informants and gatekeepers are whoever can open and close doors relationally, regardless of whether or not they're supportive or participating in our ministry. Do they have that kind of social capital and authority that even even though they may not be a person of peace, they may introduce you to like 50 people and say, you know, this is a good guy, you need this guy, and that credibility gets extended or denied. And then a cultural informant is somebody that can explain things to you, that can help you interpret the community, the neighborhood, what's going on. And again, they may or may not be a person of peace, but we try to distinguish those so that for our people, because we're not in a suburban context, I mean, we're mostly in the Bronx, it's highly urban. But, you know, it's, it's easy to mistake a knowledgeable person or a person with real clout as, oh, well, I really need to stick around here because this is a person of peace. And it's like, no, but they might introduce you to one. Yeah, that's really good. Joe, talk to me about what it looks like for you guys. I know you're based in Boston, but your ministry influence is a lot broader. What, what resonates with you from what we're talking about? How does your experience differ? Well, I think what resonates, well, let me, let me, let me speak to just kind of what we're seeing first. Um, 
I would say that a lot of where our fruit has been coming from is uh, helping people recognize that they actually do have relations, relationships with people, but it's, it's yeah. changing so that they may not qualify it as a friend like your article talked about. And I would say that's not just millennials. I would say that's across quite a wide spectrum of people. Um, and, you know, there's probably not research to support that comment. It's more just from observation, I would say. Um, but within that space, like people are spending 60 to 70 hours a week at their workplace, right? And that's normal. And so when we start talking about the conversations that are happening in the workplace, we're trying to help people understand, like, what, how do we move this from, you know, casual to meaningful to spiritual conversations? Yeah. Because I actually, part of what we're recognizing is people of peace actually do, they're there in those spaces and they are already having those conversations. So how do we recognize them? Similar principles to the trainings we've all had. They're hungry spiritually. How do you know that? I would say it's part, partially how they're having conversations, the questions that they're asking about life. Um, they're open to relationships. Uh, they're open to you and me. They're, they're open, but they're also willing to share whatever they're learning with, with other people that they're connected with. So those are just indicators of what, like, what would a quality of a person of peace look like? And I would say that a lot of our work and a lot of our coaching in the, in the city has gone more around how do you actually cultivate these relationships and identify where they actually are on a, on a continuum? It may not be um, in your face obvious that they're spiritually ready to go um, and ready to have this deep, meaningful conversation and open scripture with you, but people are at it on a continuum somewhere. So how do you actually navigate that and and be authentic in your relationships? So that's what a lot of our teams spend time doing, and 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 then as a result of that, what, when we find quote unquote a person of peace and they're ripe and ready, or however you talk about it. Um, we're seeing that they, they, when they come to faith, they're quick to actually begin sharing what they're learning with their spheres of influence, whether it's their families back in a different part of the city, or frankly, even in our context, people that don't even live in the city. It's they're calling home in you know Puerto Rico or Costa Rica, wherever they're from, and and you're starting to hear, oh yeah, like we started a group over the phone or over FaceTime or whatever. We're hearing a lot of that kind of conversation. So I would say what's different for us is because people are moving constantly, the concept of neighbor is complicated. Yeah. Um, I would say that there are people that are born and bred Boston and they're here, they've been here, but that is even quickly becoming less and less because you can sell the house you paid $20,000 for in 1980 for a million bucks. Why are you still here? So there's just these different complexities in our urban reality now um, that, that take away that sense of neighborhood. Though I will argue that of all of the big cities, Boston does feel like one that, that clings on to neighborhood identity a lot. So we're trying to figure out how can we actually tap into some of that more. And I like your point, you know, Seth, you use the, the language of gatekeeper. We do too. And there are people in neighborhoods that, that function as gatekeepers. They have the relational equity. And so there's just no chance. I mean, Trust has to be built and earned over time. And so if you don't have that, it's going to take you 10 years to gain it here, it seems like. Uh, so if we can, I don't know, fast track it through a gatekeeper, um, that's just what we've seen work in the neighborhood context. But again, yeah. it's really been more one-to-one relationship for us. Um, yeah, that's been similar. And I, and I would say to the gatekeeper point, I, I think I've had a number of times, 
a gatekeeper who was not a very spiritually open person, but was just relationally, you know, cool. They built that equity some way. But, you know, even asking them, you know, the kind of church community we're talking about, do you know anybody that would be interested in that? And they're like, oh, yeah, you need to go, go down the block. I'll introduce you, yada, yada. But right. seeing they, the, the network connections that already exist, even though they're in flux, they're transient, you know, just because the person sitting across from you is not necessarily going to gather doesn't mean they wouldn't introduce you to someone who would and know who that person is. Right. Um, well, I'd be curious. One of the things I know we've talked about in our team, and this can be a little bit complicated conversation, but, um, you know, the, there there is debate within the DMM world, as I've experienced, about contextualization. And, and sometimes it's not looked on very fondly. Um and I've even heard people say, well, we don't contextualize, insiders contextualize. But one of the things we talk about on our team is, you know, you, to a large extent, determine what a person of peace is by what you tell them and what you ask them to gather for. Like, what do they think they are doing? And that you as the minister determined that. Because you got to pick what stories determine whether or not they were receptive, what questions to ask, and how to explain what it was they were bringing people in a room for. And so to that extent, I feel like the worker is is inseparable from the profile of what a person of peace is. And I've seen new workers especially miss people because they said something one way. And I'm like, you know, actually, I think if you had, if you had explained it a little differently, that was a really receptive person. They weren't receptive to how you were presenting yourself and how you were presenting the type of relationship you wanted to enter into. Mm-hmm. I, all of that, again, a little bit of maybe too much context, but I would be curious in terms of how you train workers, how you present yourself. What does a person of peace see themselves as around the time they're gathering? And how do they understand their relationship with you in terms of your participation in their life? And Corey, I guess I would limit that to the ones who already exist in the harvest, not the ones who train. Mm. That's because I'm, I'm like my head's going to a bunch of different like contexts here, and like, and I feel like I don't have a central answer that covers all of those, and that might be beautiful, you know. Um, um, for instance, yesterday I have a uh, hour-long conversation with a neighbor about spiritual stuff as a result of years of relationship. And uh, <clears throat> the invitation that actually wasn't spoken of, but stuff like this has been many times, was, uh, okay, she was talking about some marriage stuff and some family stuff. And so my invitation was going to be, but then our conversation got cut off right away, um, so that she would gather, she would ask her husband or kids if they wanted to do a group that talked about the things we were talking about, which was marriage and love languages. And so essentially we were going to create a uh, targeted felt need DBS passage list. And so I think to your point is that is uh, that was me or would have been me understanding that need and uh, ushering them into a very specific entry point of discovering that. Um, I, and so I, I've, I've stolen a lot from um, – you guys know Jim Yost? I don't. Yeah, you know, Jim, and just the concept of those felt need uh, entry DBS passage lists, like what's tugging at their heart early, uh, and then 
getting people to step into a further discovery process with the different this. Um, so, I mean, I think, I don't know if that answers your question. I'm just kind of thinking about other questions, but it answers that one. When, when those groups start, how do you help transition their perception of the group from the felt need to a, a larger identity as perhaps a church or a spiritual community than a study and a discussion group? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think we have a set process. So we have, uh, you know, we look at Acts 2 and you can, okay, what are we and what are we not? And we're more of an ongoing fellowship and we've, we've stolen that from people. Um, some of the groups that are going on in our neighborhoods now with Casey Underground have just naturally transitioned into that. Um, half of their people were already in some form churched, half weren't, and they just walked into this reality as a network altogether because they're just all friends. And so I, that's it. I don't know. I haven't had a specific training on it. Um, I need to. You're making me think I need to, which is good. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers you. I'd love to hear, Joe, what you think, your thoughts. But, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, let me. I'll try and move my two cents in a second. Joe, I'd be curious for you to weigh in on this. So, uh, the original question about contextualization and what, what do they think they're gathering for? What do they think you are? Mm-hmm. And then I'm sure I'll have more. Okay, so. What do they think they are? They think they're friends. I, I mean, I, I think part of it is, so I'm going to double down on, on Corey, your statement. Um, I, I wouldn't call it, I, I agree with Jim on like felt needs, but I think I'm beginning to disagree with the language of felt need because it's actually their need, right? Like it's actually what they're dealing with, it's what they're wrestling with. Sure. And, and I think part of what I've learned and what we're training and really more mentoring the, the leaders we walk with is to listen to what God is doing in their heart right now. Look, if we would actually believe in discovery as a principle, then part of contextualization really is just a, the act of listening. And, and, and I, I think we are terrible listeners in America generally, but especially in, in missiology and in missions and in church life, we, we don't listen. Um, we already have a prejudged idea of what it's going to look like. Um, I mean, I'm having this debate even with, how do we even form church? Like, what has to look like this? Why? What's well, always looked like that? Well, come on. I mean, like, what are you talking about? That doesn't even, that's not even rational. Um, and so, like, right now we have an example where we've got a, um, a woman that we've walked with for a long time and we've actually sent her off. She's forming a new team, focusing around people that are dealing with some serious trauma. And so what is their actual need? Um, PTSD trauma counseling, like is kind of where they're going, you know? And so if I were to prerequisite that and say, no, it actually has to be creation of Christ and then we'll deal with their problems later. I think you've lost them from the thing. So they go back to your original question. What does a person of peace think that they are? They think they're my friend because they are my friend or they think whatever. And we're actually having a conversation around things that matter, things of the heart, things that, that they're dealing with. And so, and the scriptures speak to those things. And so how do, what am I asking them to do when I'm asking them to gather people? Do you have other friends that are dealing with the same thing that want to talk about it? And so it becomes a conversation among friends and equals. And I think that's a, that's another challenge with the insider outsider language that I've had. Like, I'm not over you or above you or frankly, even under you. I'm just with you. And, and I think that's actually, there's a, there's a, there's something to that. I mean, read in John, like the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Right. I think we've lost that in even some of our contextualization trainings. Yes. Uh, and so that, that would be my answer to your question. I'm not sure if I'm 
getting you know, at it all. Can I, can I throw out another thing with that is, so I found, I, I was starting to tell people about, we, we fan the flame of the already uh, godly desires in their heart and give that purpose. And so a conversation with a neighbor and she's just retiring and she wants her, she wants her retirement to matter. And she's always been this generous person. So we had this long conversation about how you know, that's a God given thing. I mean, you, you are someone who's generous, you know, and you fan that flame, uh, in a context like, uh, jail or halfway houses. When we find people, they may or may not, they're spiritually interested. They're not Jesus followers yet, but we fan that flame of purpose uh, in their lives as someone who, hey, you want to be a part of something bigger. There's this guy named Aaron that I met in jail about six months ago. I'd never done any of this, but you can tell he was open. You can tell since he was a pretty big drug dealer that he knew everyone. And so we just fanned the flame and said, dude, like, imagine what could happen if you use that influence in the same way that you used to. And I was like, and so we kind of gave this vision. Hey, man, do you think that you could help uh, these, we call them soap groups, these discovery groups happen in every one of the pot, or every one of the cells. And I like, I think that means yes. Like, and so, and then he did. And, and, and that's all, and he just took that. And that was, a, again, a very specific network. But we, we, fanned, we fanned the flame of something that was like, they wanted, it already started to stir. And he just say, yeah, that's, there's purpose in that. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes good sense to me. I think, you know, we, one of the things that we talk about with our staff is we train them in, and really it's inductive evangelism, but we talk about this beatitude evangelism sometimes because it's just easier to remember that. But, you know, rather than go and try to tell someone a story to teach them something, go and affirm a quality or ability that they have that you admire from the standpoint of a disciple. So, you know, you're a real peacemaker. That's something I would like to be better at. It really matters in my work. I mean, our, the churches we start are always in conflict. Here's a situation. Help me make peace there. And because that matters to me for, as a disciple of Jesus. And then, you know, as, or, you know, you're really good at comforting people. I see everybody when they grieve, when they mourn, they come to you. Where did you learn that? How could I do a better job of that in my ministry? And then it just opens up this door to say, you would be a great leader in the kind of groups that we start because you already naturally have a lot of these abilities. And it's not a bait and switch. I mean, you're not lying to them. This is, it really is. You've been vetting them that whole time. You are, but it, yeah, exactly. But it's also, you're not, you're not trying to trick them into anything. It's like, look, I'm serious. You have qualities and abilities that I don't know if you know how important those are, but there's an incredible amount of potential there to help form life-giving community around things that you do more naturally than me. And I want to help you start that. Um, and I think that kind of inductivity leads well to them reimagining their own potential for leadership because most people don't think of themselves as a leader. And most people who think of themselves as a leader, I don't want to lead things. Right. <laughs> but also, it, because it comes from such a partnering position, there's a sense in which they don't see me as the expert coaching them it's so much as Joe, as you described, the friend walking alongside, but this is their baby. They're going to they're gonna help start this thing. And I want to speak to that too, Seth, because one of the things I'm wrestling with as well is like when, when you start to release control, because I think that at the end of what we're talking about, that I'm not going to prescribe how this is going to go with you. 
then it ends up looking very different than I would have anticipated. So sometimes even like the discovery Bible study and the format of it gets abandoned in the moments. The principles are still all there. But then when I started, you know, early on, when I first got into DMM, I was like, well, I got to fix that. I got to get back in there and, and fix that because that's not going to do what we want it to do. Yeah. And I feel, and I feel like there's got to be a check in us as missionaries and as catalysts in that space to recognize, you know, we have to, do we really trust that the Holy Spirit's actually at work in this moment? And we have to have a coaching conversation around, you know, um, one, how are people experiencing God in these groups? That's discovery. Are they discovering God? And then two, are they actually sharing that with other people? That's the multiplication. And then yeah. let all of the, the nuts and bolts of the tactic go away. And I think that's something we, we need to spend more time thinking through. Yeah. Uh, don't get so, I think we hold on so tight to our tools. Yeah. Uh, we got to trust our friends. I would be curious, I, and maybe this is getting too far into the weeds, but what is the relationship between the original person of peace and the leadership development? And I, I mean, obviously it's, it's going to be different in, in different cases, but do you find that the person that gathers is normally the person that's leading six months a year down the road? Or are you usually looking for a different kind of leader to develop for multiplication and, and long-term sustainability? That's another tricky. I don't know if I have a, a set answer that it's always been looking that way. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, always, I think is a useless. Case. I think, but I, I would say, I think part of the thing that we're recognizing is that people have different gifts, and I think that's um, a reality, right? So it just depends on the person. So if a person has the ability to kind of shepherd and maintain and, and administer, they're the ones that actually end up last. Those groups last longer. They form more quickly. They they form a little bit more um, holistically, maybe. I, maybe that's not the right word, Um but then I've got a lot of people that really are that energetic, apostolic, prophetic kind of leader. And it's like, okay, you started that one and it lasted three weeks and you're already on to the next person. You didn't raise anybody. And it's like, okay, well, we're just kind of release bounds, but you call it what it is. I mean, they're really sowing seeds and we're going to have to come up later. And then part of our mentoring with those apostolic leaders is more, okay, we have to actually identify some people that can hold this and maintain this and grow this here. That's not your role. Um, but we, that's something we're having a lot of conversations around. What about you, Corey? How does that work itself out in, in your ministry? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'll just give you probably two highlights and two totally different places. Um, so within a, uh, a county jail that we have a, a relationship with, it was, we found a person who was willing to gather people. We told them to do it right away. And then I would meet with them. I would walk through it, and then I'd meet with them three or four weeks later <laughs> and, uh, and coach them, hang out with them, and more of it was just praying with them, mentoring. It was less troubleshooting as a leader or just, you know, praying with and ministering to them. Um, and then I, depending on how long they were there, that's probably, that's the best rhythm that we had was basically monthly meetings with people who were doing daily groups. <laughs> All right, so that's a very specific setting. Um so we've got a guy in the network is uh, his kids' baseball team, right? And so what they did is they they would go and travel every weekend for freaking 
both half the year or a third of the year, and then they came home. And so we're we're just we're you know continuing the fandom flame of what that looks like for him. And so when he came home, they actually just opened up their home because they were one of the natural connectors, and had two weeks ago when they started it had twenty people all from this baseball team immediately gathering in their living room to the discovery group. Um, and so like that was more of a like he's a part of this larger network now that's like, hey, this is what we do, this is who we are, and you are actually identified now as the spiritual head of that community. Um, you know what I mean? Like so it's like mm. that that identity now for them is you're more than a relational connector. You and your which may consist of not yet believers are identifying themselves as spiritual heads of this community. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, two very different contexts, um, but that that team that team concept I think was the big question. Two or three. Times. Corey, you might pause on that because I I don't know if Joe's lost down there, but I lost. Uh, I'm I'm losing you there, buddy. Yeah, can you repeat repeat the last Uh-oh. thirty seconds of what you said? Yeah, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I'm driving down I seventy. Uh, I think there was the, there's this team ownership concept that has been big uh, for us lately. Is okay. So you've got other people in your team, and that you actually um, you take ownership of this group being. Like, you take authoritative ownership of this group. And yeah. so as we're coaching alongside, you're, you're part of a bigger network, but you're, uh, so this is like who we are now as this bigger network. It's just like, hey, this is your, this is your network or your neighborhood that you are owning. And it, it's you as believers, maybe, or maybe it's you along inside a team of others. So they're the, the, their main partners, I don't think, are, are believers yet. Um, so that's a little bit different concept, but they just invite them in because they're, part of their family, their friendship. So I don't want to go too, too much longer because I want this to be watchable in terms of length. But I would be curious, on the training side, both for your own workers and, and other local Christians you're mobilizing, I know one of the things I've seen people struggle with is how many relationships they're going to form that are not people of peace and that don't have any network. And it's, it's the vast majority of spiritual conversations they're going to have is that maybe that person is curious, maybe that person is interested, unwilling or unable to gather anyone else. How, how do you handle those people in your ministry? How do you coach people to handle that in terms of, you know, we don't want to just toss relationships by the wayside, but also you do have things that you're looking for, searching for. You can't camp out with the first 12 people that'll talk to you about Jesus. One on one, one on one, on one. You know what I mean? Um, how do you coach people through that? How do you how do you anticipate that in the way that you train? Let me go off that one first here, Corey. Um, so a couple pieces of that, right? So it just depends on where you're living. So I, I would say a lot of the, our folks, um, the majority of their relationships are in their workplace, so they can't just toss relationships. Like it's in your face, and if you do something like that, then you're really hurting yourself. Uh, in that space, right? So we still go back to the idea of, and I'm stealing this a little bit from our T4T friends, uh, the red light, yellow light, green light concept, or they're they're not quite ready to have these conversations, so this is how I'm going to navigate it. 
yellow is more just kind of this, they're warming up to it. So how do I, how do I honor where they are is really the conversation we're having. Um, and so I would say that really in some sense, we're trying to teach people how to cultivate a person into a person of peace. Um, because especially when you can't move location because they're in your workplace, they're always going to be there. What, what is my response to the folks and their conversations where they are? Sometimes that's even true in a neighborhood for a season. Um, but I would also say like, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to press. Like I've got a handful of friends that I've walked with for the six years I've been here that I would say are, they're just not open and they're not willing uh, to go there with me, but they're still my friends. And I think there's a long view that we have to hold as well. So why, what we're talking about is more like, where's my time spent? Yes. I have to spend my time with those that are actually wrestling with these conversations and want to go there with me. So I do spend more time and more energy around that space. But because I'm already going to cross these sectors with these other relationships, I just have to, I have to honor where people are at. And so we we talk a lot about just honoring the authenticity of the relationship. I'm not sure if I'm scratching you or you're itching on that one. I I like that because I think for me, one of the harder things to communicate is that like a lot of my most meaningful friendships have been and are with people that have no interest in our ministry. Yep. And so those, those relationships did not suffer at all from a lack of interest or identity as a person of peace. And at the same time, and I like the language you use, honoring where they're at. It's respectful to let them not be receptive to what you're trying to do. Yeah. You have an agenda for them. You I just want them to experience God. And if they're not, if they're not there, then I love them. And that's, and maybe that's how they're experiencing God right now. That's where they are right now. And that's, and that's what we talk about in our evangelism training is you don't have an agenda for other people. You have an agenda for yourself. And it's clearly enough of what you are as a disciple that other people can respond if they wish. That's right. That's dead right. If you don't wish to, it respects them not to, not to try to make them more respectful. Right. Right. Uh, Corey, I'd be curious about that for you. How how do you coach people like that? How do you make Know the bulk of people not not probably functioning as persons of peace. Yeah, um, if, if I lose you guys, let me know. Um, I I don't. I have two things that we consistently tell people because I think some of what you guys are talking about, at least from what I found, is is the natural default position. Um, in some ways, like I'm still going to be friends with people if they're not spiritually okay. Um, I just tell two thing two things to people. One is that. Uh, don't spend all your efforts. You've got, you've got a potential garden in front of you, staring at, at one plant that may, may not bear fruit bearing all of that. And so that's the thing. Just don't stare. It's like, no, go, go, go. Like, know when to move on as, as far as actually looking for persons of peace with actual spiritual interest. Yeah. So I, I, I used that. I stole that from somebody years ago. Uh, and then the other one I'm always pressing into is, is continue to look for the one who will reach the many. Look for the one who will reach the many. Look for the one who will reach the many. And so it, don't get, don't, it goes with the first concept. Don't spend all your time in a place that may not. But there are certain ones that are worth the effort. You know, if that is the one who could reach the many, and it's like, okay, I could see if I'm just patient in this. Because yeah. I'm seeing, it's a yellow light-ish, but I man, this person knows everyone. And this that- person is is someone who, if God stirs their heart, could do plenty. You know, yeah. like, 
that is worth the, the time for me uh, to wait. But you can get burned to do it. You know, crap. It's funny, you you remind me of a couple things that I often say in our in our big box trainings, and this may be a good note to end on. I I I talk about a, a couple things, and one is I say, you know, in our ministry we're surrounded by Nicodemuses, which you know, Nicodemus pops up three times in the Gospel of John. He comes in John three, and they have the conversation about living water. He defends Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin and then he helps bury him. And it's like, so here's the guy who's constantly around and curious and advocating for, but does not want to be counted among the disciples. And it's like, that's the most common profile person I know in New York. Like, they'll talk to me about anything. They'll read the Bible story with me. They'll be like, this is my pastor. You should listen to him. And I'm like, they should listen to me. But, <laughs> but I think the other thing, that's one reaction. I meet that person all the time. Those are make up most of my really close friendships uh, and even kind of adopted family in New York. And then the other reality is, you know, I tell the story about when I was a kid going to school in Oklahoma, we did this experiment where we were growing bean sprouts and we were going to like put aphids on them and put ladybugs on the aphids to see the cycle of life. I don't know if my teacher was a sadist or something, but the, I did not get to participate in said science experiment because every day when I came in, I would dig up the seed in the little cup of dirt to see if it was growing yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I grew nothing because I killed that thing. Um, and the point to make, you know, you're, you're surrounded by these people. You're looking for the right, you know, connection and, and relational equity to start something. But I always tell our team, don't let your anxiety about what you're trying to grow and form cause you to dig that up in a way that you're going to interfere with it producing fruit. That's good. Your own anxiety and need for validation are the most likely to kill any kind of ministerial fruit or momentum that you're going to build. You can't do the hard discipline of being patient enough to let God form what's what's being formed there. Uh, And I, there's a lot of fruit I've harvested that I didn't plant. But pretty much anything I've planted took a lot of patience to see it come to fruition. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more things that I've planted that I just hope God sends the right person to harvest that because I'm not, I'm not around anymore in that person's life. And I, I think that may be a helpful note to end on in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, I think this is not primarily a strategy question. I think our theology matters. Um, and, and to your point, Joe, really trusting that God is already at work in these people when, when they are ready to do what we're there to do. God is at work in the people who frustrate us by their misalignment with our strategy. Uh, and, uh, you know, even in the dissolution of groups and, and the failure, quote-unquote, of our own strategy, you know, DMM's not the gospel. It's just a, a really good way to align our work with what we're trying to produce. But the gospel is that God is already at work in redeeming the world. Thank you for joining us today on the Global City Mission podcast. You can learn more about GCMI on our website, globalcitymission.org, or you can visit us on our Facebook and Twitter.